Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today on a very warm day in a very deserted Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Dave Radley. Dave is the owner of DMR Training and Consultancy, a construction training provider. Dave, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hello, Scott. You all right? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. As well as can be given the circumstances. Um, yeah, and, I agree, yeah. And t- touching on those circumstances, actually, um, it's really bringing leadership under the microscope, isn't it? The whole COVID-19 outbreak. Tell me, how has it been leading a business in your sector over the last few weeks? I can imagine it has been quite disruptive. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's been quite the roller coaster, really. As, as you know, a few weeks back, we could kind of see uh, what was coming to a certain extent, although... I don't think anybody knows knows really kind of how long it's going to last and, and what we're going to do next and all that kind of, all those kind of things. But um, yeah, we, we started preparing really probably probably about four weeks back um, in basically like informing all the staff what our plan was. Um, I, I put a, a plan together, like a strategy to get through it. Um, we, we set out like a three-month plan um, just to just to make sure we could keep everyone on board, keep it, keep everyone in work, um, and everything we did at that time were, were a lot of remote workers that are kind of going out on sites, construction sites across the country. We kind of said, you know, get out as much as you can, get, get gather every, everything you can with a view to being able to work on that, you know, from your own home um, when when the, the bad period hits, which is what we're currently doing. Um, I think it's just been difficult to kind of keep kind of inspiring people, keeping people going because you know as the days go by, different people at different levels. Some some days are positive, you know, a bit of bad news comes out, um, they, they go quite low, and, and it's kind of keeping trying to keep morale go up, up, up to positive really at the moment. That's that's mm-hmm. the main thing. Absolutely. I mean, trying to uh, maintain morale for business leaders at the moment and leaders in all walks of life is so, so important. Um, can you actually think of a time um, in your career uh, before this when you've had to take any other decisions like this or when you've had to face similar challenges or is this very much uncharted territory? Um, uncharted, really. I, mean, I think it is for everybody. I mean, we have had um, good times and bad times like like any other company. Um, I mean, we've had times where we, we access a lot of um, government funding for the qualifications we deliver, um, and that tends to, to, to be up and down. And, and you know, each year the government uh, will do a review, and decide what they want to be funded and what what not, what not, what isn't being funded. Um, and it does affect us because it changes. It's quite um, rare, really, that, that something goes for years and years and it doesn't change. So we're tapping into different streams of funding and. You know, we're, often, we're doing commercial training, we're doing funded training, and you have to make decisions. So a couple of times over, you know, in our eighth year now, um, a couple of times where this funding been kind of switched off what we've been relying on, so we've had to quickly, um, you know, reevaluate our position and put together a different business plan, really, which which has been quite challenging. Um, and at these in these times, you know, there could be staff changes or uh, financial uh, problems, which we've had to kind of, you know make sure we, we can quickly adjust and, and keep moving forward. But yeah, as, as I said, very much. 
Yeah, of course. And it's, it's really testing as well that ability for business to be reactive, isn't it? Because um, businesses can be proactive. They can have all the plans and all of the measures in place. But when guidelines and news are changing every single day, there are new regulations coming in and new developments. It's really important to be able to not just necessarily roll with the punches, but be able to see what's going on, make a decision. Um, that's so important at the moment, isn't it? It's a huge quality to have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm tuned into the you know the news every day, and, and especially the you know the, the when the government speaks every day um, on the update. I'm, I'm very much tuned into that to see what obviously we're kind of mirroring that as, as there are a lot of people um, to see what we do next. Uh, I mean, it has, it has opened a lot of doors uh, to be honest um, in a way because we're now working quite well. We are a lot. We're all working remotely. Um, we're using more. Uh, innovative methods. Um, we've got, you know, a lot of staff. What was probably quite reluctant to embrace new ways and, and technology, um, and now we're finding that, you know, by the day, more and more people are buying into it, and we're probably working more efficiently, really, uh, in, in many ways. I think now the, the kind of dust is settling a little bit. Um, people are getting used to it. Um, I don't want to get too used to, to being all I suppose, but um, we are we are working our way through it and finding out new ways. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, rolling with the punches, we're, we're trying to do that. Um, but obviously, I'm, I'm kind of in the background, just just monitoring what what the next bit of advice is from the government and how we we move forward to that uh, from that. So I feel like I'm kind of creating a strategy day by day, really. But I guess I guess no one's um, no one's in any other different position, really. Exactly. And um, in terms of your own uh, leadership style then, Dave, would you say that you prefer to take a back seat usually, see how things play out and then take decisions based on that? Or are you more somebody who, in a normal context, would get on top of situations as soon as possible, dive right in and take decisive action straight away? Um, yeah, I, I would dive straight in and, and I've always tried to you know, lead from the front, you know, do as I do type of thing. But I think what I've learned from this situation is that I, Probably tried to do that at, at the start of, of when this, this situation started to to evolve, but um, I think because it's changing every day, I'm kind of having to adjust and just take a little bit more of a back seat and just just wait, uh, just wait a little bit longer just to see what what the next bit of news is and the, the next directives are. Um, it's, it's worked a bit better, especially over the last week. Um, I mean, obviously, I think I'm not on my own by by thinking. You know, we're looking now at you know when the peak comes and what the exit strategy is, and obviously I've got a lot of the, the the economic side of it, um, which I'm trying to just just predict as, as time goes on. Um, but yeah, I think it's more of a more of a backseat at the minute, to be honest, mm. not to make any kind of knee jerk reactions because you think you find that you do, and then it, things change the day after. And you think, oh, you know what? Probably reacted a bit quickly though, so it's hard. I think. I think it's just getting a balance, really. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, establishing that balance is um, of huge importance and um, also trying to navigate through um, sort of the storm of this crisis is very much a learning curve for business leaders as well. And based upon that experience and the big experience that you've accumulated over the years as well, Dave, if you were to give any advice for the next generation of emerging leaders who are maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, what might you tell them? Um, I think to, to be patient, really. Um, you know, things don't happen overnight. Um, I think as every time you go through, you know, the, the good times, bad times, especially the the, the bad times, I suppose. Um, you know, you, you, you develop your resilience more. Um, and you, you know, I, I've always said to people, you know, if you, if you go through something once, um, 
it's pretty bad. Um, or if it's pretty bad, the second time you do it, you kind of you get that little bit stronger, and then the third and fourth and so on. And, and I don't think you're ever um, ever kind of not you're not you're never going to be be in a position where you're not going to have setbacks or or bad times. But I think it's how you react to it and how you deal with it. Um, I think personally, I'm probably a lot stronger person than I was eight years ago and, and this situation is nothing less I mean you know we're all talking to just stay positive amidst a lot of you know a lot of bad news and, and sad stories um, but yeah I think I think the main thing is be, be patient listen to people listen listen to people as much as you can many people as you can um, don't be afraid of making decisions I think if you prefer to make a decision um, you know you, you'll go a long way I think it, there's no you, know, you might not always get it right, um, but if you don't make one, you, you're never going to move forward. I'll, I'll learn from it. That might be the case. I can certainly see where you're coming from there. And you talk about setbacks. You talk about not being afraid of getting things wrong. Do you think it's possible to actually be a good leader without making mistakes first? Because it is very much a learning process, isn't it? Yeah, um, I'd say not. I'd say, I'd say you've got to go through that. I think you know, not just business in life in general. I think you've got to got to suffer setbacks and, and learn from it. I think, you know, you, you're defined by, you know, the situations you go through and, and ultimately how you react and learn from that. Um, so no, I think, you know, you've, you've got to go through those 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 uh, those things to, to develop. Absolutely. And um, have you ever heard, um, or rather, have you ever had in your career any leadership figures or any experiences that have maybe had an influence on your own style of leadership as well, Dave? Um, I don't like to single anybody kind of famously or anything like that. I, mean, I tend to, to kind of take in what I can um, from what's going on. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a small kind of mining town. Um, my dad was a miner, and, and you know, the, the work ethic that he had. You know, when he, he was working when I was younger, I used to kind of every day. I, I remember uh, vividly asking him every day what he'd been doing at work, what was it like to work, all that kind of stuff. I mean, my dad. Had a, had a tough time when he was younger and lost his dad when he was young and, and you know he was brought up with his brother and sister by his, by his mother uh, alone and that I think that resilience and work ethic you know you, you see that unfold unfold over time and you learn from people like that you know and people around me like a good friend of mine his, his family his dad had a big, big business when I was younger and I learned a lot from them as well about you know how, especially setbacks as well and how to you know just keep, keep moving forward um, and I think you know these, these people around you. I think it's more people around me rather than kind of key, you know, influential figures. You know, in, in you know famous people. Um, I think I more learn from people like that than anything else. And it's really interesting you say that because when people do think of leadership figures, they think of people who are in the public eye. But quite often, a lot of examples of good leadership, especially in a business context, are very much under the radar, aren't they? They uh, very they do often go unseen. I think so, yeah, and I think it's. I mean, you spend most of your time with these people, like, like you know, obviously with family members, which I've just uh, explained, and then and some friends, his family, I mean, they, they had quite a big business um, at one point, and I used to, I kind of ask a lot of questions all the time, and I'd see how they they developed it, and you you know, you're seeing them living and breathing it, and um, and you know, I still talk to them, you know, to, the, to this day, and, and ask questions, um, but yeah, I think that you see that that's going on around you and you, you can openly ask questions rather than kind of reading like you know, stories in the media and all that kind of stuff which you, all too kind of often you, you're seeing these stories about now um, 
and you, like I say, you're not you're not as close to those kind of people, so it's, it's hard to kind of digest sometimes. Yes, it certainly can be. Um, I'm conscious of uh, running out of time, Dave, but before we do go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself for DMR training and consultancy and also what you hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the outbreak and coming out the other side of that. Yeah, I think we're just, just kind of trying to develop our people at the minute and develop our, what, what get everything everything we offer, um, get, define it more really whilst we've, we've kind of got the chance to. Um, we have been growing quite quite rapidly over the last like twelve months. Um, it, it's in a bit of a peak um, ourselves. So I think I think as we get, as we get through this period, um, I'd like to think we can we can move forward and, and keep growing um, with a you know more resilient team. And I think you know coming out the back of this situation, which I'm hoping we get through sooner rather than later. I think I'm hoping that that'll be the, the case for society as a whole. To be honest, that people can kind of see the good in things and. And start to you know develop resilience and become better people really more than anything else i would certainly agree with that i think there are things that we can take away from this um, especially in terms of this um, feeling of national unity that we have this idea of being kinder to each other helping each other through this crisis and i think it would be fantastic if we can maintain those values going forward from here and we know there will be an upward trajectory at some point and let's hope that we start seeing that sooner rather than later as well and we really do sort of power toward that light um, at the end of the tunnel. Um, I have to say, yeah, Dave, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and really insightful as well and I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on the programme in a few months to look back at this and see how things have played out. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Uh, no problem, thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure absolute pleasure myself as well now um coming up next on the program we hand over to jonathan white for his exclusive interview with england cricket legend sir andrew strauss i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking to sir andrew that's coming up now hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then 
Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray 
He looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably 
worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think they're they're all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be, it doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move it at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is, 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary yeah, thing well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. potentially a, a 
declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.